We believe that the issue of sojourning and the issue of migration is something that's very deeply biblically rooted. And we believe in God's solidarity with migrants everywhere. I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're co-workers. He's the boss and we're married. And she's the boss. Together, we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture. What could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I are going to catch up after being in our nation's capital. She's got a really good story about the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. And then later on, Missy and I sat down with the executive director of the Baptist Peace Fellowship of North America, also known as Baptista por la Paz, the Reverend Jason Smith. We talk about what they're doing, about justice and peace around the world, and it's a great conversation. So stay tuned. we got uh, lots to talk about. It's going to be a good pod. Howdy, Missy. Hey, how's it going? Doing well. How are you? I'm well. Well, it's good to be back home after a quick uh, turnaround. Yeah, if we went to D.C. for a couple of days. Yeah, the District of Columbia, the nation's capital. Yes, got to do something for the first time. What's that? Went to the National Cathedral. You never, did? Never yeah, I did too. Never been there before. Was, oh, was that your first time as well? Well, let me, okay, so it was my second time. It was my first time inside the cathedral. The first time I went, uh, I was with one of our church members mm-hmm. about 15 years ago, and we had dinner, and we went out to uh, the cathedral to see it. Oh, your mandate. The mandate. Oh, yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was okay. waiting for that. Yes. Okay. Yes, I do remember that. <laughs> yeah, I had a mandate. Yeah. We went to the so, chapel so, together. Yeah, gotcha. Exactly. Gotcha. Exactly. So this was actually my second time on the grounds, but first time inside the cathedral. It was beautiful. It was so pretty. Um, but as my random brain goes, I, as I was taking in the beauty, I got real twitchy. What's Look, that? <laughs> There's a whole lot of flags hanging in that sanctuary. <laughs> <laughs> I just had, had some a little bit of post-traumatic situations from all those uh, deacons meetings over the years with you and and deacons and churches and flags in the sanctuary. And I thought, clearly they have not had these meetings in this church. <laughs> but we should have asked the rector why there were flags in the sanctuary. Well, I'm totally fine. Uh, you know, there's flags from all 50 states, right? That's yeah. the thing. But yeah. it just, it was so funny. I thought, well, clearly they haven't had to um, <laughs> deal with this in this cathedral, but I get it. Uh, that's so, so funny. funny. Well, we were there to celebrate our colleagues' graduation. Yes. Re- Reverend, now Dr. Starlet Thomas. Uh, she graduated from Wesley Seminary with her doctorate of ministry degree. And it was uh, just a great celebration. Yes, we got to celebrate her. Um, yeah. It was an experience. I, as usual, had some angst during the ceremony. Yeah, well, let me kind of set the stage here. Because we walked in, and it was general seating. And so a lot of the families and individuals walked really quickly up to the front where the graduates were going to be, near the stage area. And the way the cathedral is laid out, it's a really long, thin Mm-hmm. Uh, cathedral. And so if you had to sit way back, you know, you couldn't really see anything. Thankfully, they had TV screens everywhere. But we at first walk all the way we down. We just walk all the way to the front yeah. towards, you know, as you do, you file in and take your seat. And so we found, you know, the open row and 
it, it's open. We sit down, and then a few minutes later, a gentleman comes over and says, I'm sorry, this row's blocked off, which, you know, of course, rule follower me, then is mortified. <laughs> right. But it didn't say it was reserved. It didn't. It didn't. But anytime we go into a new church, whether it's the National Cathedral or, you know, a little country chapel, I'm mm-hmm. always nervous about taking somebody's seat. Sure. So when we were asked to move, I was embarrassed, but also just mortified. Like we had broken rules. So I looked at him. I was like, was this marked? I'm sorry. And he mm-hmm. said, no, we just meant to, it's it's just, we're trying to leave this row open. So, you know, my thought is, well, that would have been nice to put on a sign. <laughs> exactly. So we, I was already a little like. On the edge. On, on, on the, the edge, edge after yeah. that. So by that point, then so many rows had filled up. We had to go towards the back. Mm-hmm. We found another row to sit on again. It's fine. No big deal. And we somehow ended up in the uh, toddler section. (laughs) That's an understatement, but yes. I adore toddlers. I just squish their cheeks and just gnaw on them and love them to death. Right. However. In a two-hour service? (laughs) Yes. So the service hadn't even started yet. And the way the chairs were kind of connect, they're all connected. So as they're moving around, like your chair's just bumping around, kind of like the kid kicking the back of the airplane seat, you know, so this is going on and we know we've got a solid two and a half hours to still sit. Easy. I mean, no judgment, you guys, no judgment. However, (laughs) that we didn't have a toddler meant that we didn't have to sit through this. Exactly. Exactly. So you look at me and you're like, Oh, I could feel the (laughs) angst. I mean, exuding from your body. You leaned over and just said, I'll go find us another seat. <laughs> I mean, it was bad. So, I mean, often no, I could hear the squirrel, you know, going was, in your I, head. Again, but, it's not that it's not, I'm not all get off my lawn kind of person. It wasn't that at no. all. It's just that your chair is like just jolting every few seconds as they're jumping up and down. So you went and found us a new seat on the side, like the side section mm-hmm. of the cathedral which was perfect. It, not very many people were sitting over there. And so we kind of had a row to ourselves. It was very quiet. Um, and then I realized in those types of sanctuary or sanctuaries, cathedrals that are the very long, narrow design mm-hmm. and just the, the beautiful pillars and, and architecture where we sat, we couldn't see the stage, which was fine. They right. had video monitors, not a big deal at all. But then I thought, how committed did one have to be a hundred years ago to go to church? <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, I mean, just think if you sat all the way in the back on the side and you, you had an obstructive view. Right. And with no amplification. And, and no, like, what do you call it? Incline yeah. on your seating. Everything is flat. Right. And so you had to really want to be there. And I'm not so sure I would have had that level of commitment back then. You would have been a pagan back then. I mean, likely. Well, I got news for you. (laughs) You're not much far off from one now. So we're sitting, hey, so we're sitting on the side, the ceremony, the graduation ceremony starts. But before it started, somebody came up and, and announced ahead of time and said, hey, BT dubs, FYI, they didn't use that language, but yeah. Per cathedral policy, there will be no photographs or videos allowed during the ceremony. To which time, or at which time, you kicked me and said, did you hear that? Because I'm notorious for, for Yes, you're videos. bad about that. Yeah. So, so I put my 
microphone in my well, jacket. And my thought is this is the National Cathedral. Like right. we walked in, there were national like security police officers everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to risk it and break rules in this situation, right? Exactly. I had you a dress a and heels on. I didn't want to get tackled that day. <laughs> so the ceremony starts and I start noticing lots of people when their student you know family member was called getting up taking videos they also said you know don't clap for each person wait till the end and people were clapping and hooting and hollering and all these things which again i understand if this were my child my spouse you know my sibling who was you know getting their master's or their doctorate hard earned i mean i would want to celebrate them and every way possible and if that meant i stood up and took a picture and and broke a roll, like I, I understand no judgment but this was making me so nervous yeah you know what's happening right now right what you're you're revealing your inner fundamentalist oh totally <laughs> she's alive and well y'all it's fine so this was going on so i'm just Again, I understand and applaud these people and I, I celebrate with them and, and, and with their families and, and getting these awards. But at the same time, I'm like, you guys, there's police officers here. <laughs> You're going to get arrested and You're taken down. You're going to get arrested for taking a picture. <laughs> and then there, then there was an open area to the side. Again, we're on the side of the cathedral. There's a long kind of like open walkway area. And so these little children who had been getting very antsy during the ceremony, there were some parents who were letting their kids like, you know, kind of like hop up and down the side of the yeah, thing. And yeah. they were, it was not super disruptive at all. Mm-hmm. But all of this going on, all of this rule breaking happening was just about all I could handle at that moment. So, well, I'm so glad that you got over it. <laughs> sure, <laughs> I did. No, it was fine. It was a beautiful ceremony. A We're ceremony. so proud of our newly minted doctor star, as we will now call her. Yeah. So, it was a beautiful ceremony. Everything went fine. Nobody got tackled or arrested that I'm aware of. So. Absolutely. It was great. Great. So, well, let's talk a little bit about the news uh, before we go to our interview. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, we discovered that uh, in Allen, Texas this week where there was another mass shooting. It seems like this is just reoccurring uh, on a weekly basis now, but uh, eight victims of a mass shooting at an outdoor mall there in Allen. The uh, suspect was killed uh, in the incident by local police, and it appears that he had a, an AR-15 style weapon. He had eight weapons on him that were purchased legally, and a lot of the victims in that shooting were children. Many of them were of Asian descent and Indian descent. I say that to let you know that looking and investigating his background he looks like that he was a sympathizer to neo-nazism and white supremacy and then later on we find out that he had uh, he had served in the military but the military discharged him after three months because they identified a lot of problems with him and discharged him because of some mental illness diagnosis that they they uh, put on him. So it's a horrible, horrible situation. And I write about it this week in my weekly column. Uh, you know, the question is, are you tired of gun violence? Well, 
when are we going to do something? And it seems like that question is posed after every mass shooting and nothing is happening. But this time, you know, at least some Texas legislators are actually considering raising the age to purchase an assault style rifle to 21 years of age. So this has got them shaken up with other mass shootings in the state as well. So lots going on there, but uh, you know, it's scary because we've got family down there. Yeah. So again, as I said before on the pod, lather, rinse, repeat. It feels like we keep talking about this. We um, (laughs) always think, Oh, people are tired of hearing about this. Guess what? We're tired of talking about it. We're tired of bringing it up. We're tired of this being an opening to so many of our conversations. Um, obviously there's some issues involved and people say, well, it's mental health. Well, yes, it is. And also like we were talking about earlier, not everyone who has mental health issues is, you know, getting a gun and shooting people. And also I I know it's complex. It is complex, but I mean, some of the evidence suggests that it's a false herring or herring to put out that this is all about mental illness. Now, in this specific case, this gentleman had mental health issues in the past. But in my article this week, I cite the Mental Health uh, or Mental Health America, and they say, and I quote, the vast majority of people with mental illness are not violent. 95 to 97% of homicidal gun violence is not carried out by individuals with a mental illness. So, yes, I think we should address mental uh, illness, mental health. 100%, yes. And that's not just because That's of not because of guns. Gun that's, that's just because we should. Right, because period. the reality is, and they go on to say, that the majority of suicides are caused because or, or uh, occur from people who are struggling with their mental health and they utilize guns to commit the act. And so, yes, 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 we need to deal with mental health and mental uh, illness because there is segments of gun violence that are directly associated with it. But I feel like it just becomes a scapegoat for yeah, people right. who are her pro-gun. And I, I looked something up earlier to verify this because mm-hmm. when you said this man had eight legally obtained weapons. Right. Did you know that the city that we live in will only allow you to have four chickens? (laughs) (laughs) So we have four chickens regulated regulations on chickens. Chickens. Yeah. And we are not allowed to have a rooster (laughs) because if you, because I'm assuming because the rooster might disturb the peace. Right. Right. And produce more chickens. (laughs) Well, sure. True. I mean, I don't, I've because met I mean, many you're roosters, only limited to four. Yes, <laughs> so we can have four chickens in mm-hmm. our yard. If the city, if the government can can limit how many chickens <laughs> you can have, that's a great point. How are we not able to limit even the number of guns you have? Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I mean, and I know this is probably. I mean, where is the National Chicken Association to demand? Lobby. Clearly, lo- they're not lobbying, lobbying the way the NRA is. Exactly right. <laughs> We should be able to have all these chickens. That's exactly right. But it's just things like that that it just it becomes nonsensical. Like we, yeah. when are we gonna admit this is a gun problem? It, it's the guns. I mean, yes, you have people who have. I mean, obviously, something leads you to use that gun in a nefarious way. Mm-hmm. And there are many issues we need to tackle 
you know, because, or not because, but there are many issues we need to tackle that lead up to that moment. But at the same time, if you're not allowed to walk into a store or a gun show and just buy an AR-15 with your cash app, mm-hmm. I'm guessing that might be a start yeah. to addressing I mean, this. Just, I mean, just sensible gun legislation would not alleviate every problem, obviously. There's still going to be shootings in the United States, but it could catch those individuals who have no business whatsoever purchasing a firearm, especially a an assault rifle type of firearm. The loophole in the law is if you are a licensed dealer, you have to do a background check. But if it's an individual buyer or a buyer at a gun show mm-hmm. or a seller at a gun show, you, you don't have to conduct a, a background check. And so anybody can walk in there and purchase a gun legally. Is that state by state or is that national? I think I thought it's that was a, state by state. It's state by state. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but the national law says if you're a licensed dealer, you do have to do a background check. But in a lot of states, uh, and you know, there's not a requirement for gun shows uh, or private sales. Uh, you know, another thing is the state of Florida is uh, next month going to be enacting a new permitless carry. Uh, law in the state, and that's going to be the 26th state in the United States that has a permanent permitless carry law. And this, to me, this in my article, I suggest that these types of legislation are unconstitutional; that they are actually violating the Second Amendment by passing uh, non-regulated laws, because the Second Amendment is very clear that it says a well-regulated militia. Now, we could debate militia, but militias are private citizens, and back then, you know, they gathered together to, to fight and to uphold the liberties that they held dear. We can debate the word militia, but we can't debate well-regulated. To be a legislature, either in state legislation or the federal government, you take an oath to defend the Constitution. Part of that defense is to follow the Constitution as it is written and how the laws are interpreted. And if you read the Second Amendment, it clearly suggests well-regulated. And so as these laws continue to be passed that are taking away regulations, then I think that's unconstitutional. True. What does it say about chickens? (laughs) I don't know. Maybe we need to uh, have a, a chicken's right amendment to the Constitution. I'm just saying. And I know I don't mean to make light of this no, but situation, right. but it's just like, why, you know, to be a pilot, for example, or, or you know, you're, you're taking people's safety into your hands. And I know they have just vigorous, you know, training and, and evaluations they have to go through in the military, like this gentleman who committed this latest mass shooting. I mean, obviously the military, I mean, I don't know, I haven't looked into it, I don't know what's public, but there was something in his background that the military said, you know, maybe this isn't right for you. Right. Maybe this isn't right for us. Maybe yeah. you don't need to have weapons, whatever the reason is. No harm, no foul, but, you know, maybe you'd be better suited somewhere else. It seems to reason that there should be some sort of system that would also, if you are six or eight weapons deep mm-hmm. in our country and the type of weaponry he had, that maybe you just, you know, if you're going to take on that responsibility, we have a responsibility to make sure that you can, I don't know, handle that. 
Preach. All right, no. I'm done. <laughs> Before well, I get in any more trouble, <laughs> I'm just going to be done. Uh, no, I totally agree with you, and uh, you make some great points, and our hearts go out to the families and victims down in Allen, Texas. And I just, I pray every day that uh, reason and wisdom will prevail and that we can do something to address the gun violence in the United States of America. We are one of the greatest countries in the world. We continue to prosper, and there's absolutely no reason that we should lead the world in gun violence and mass shootings. It's just asinine. So let's do something about it this year. Absolutely. Well, next, Missy and I sat down with Jason Smith. Jason is the executive director of the Baptist Peace Fellowship of North America, and we talked to him about what's going on with that organization. So stay tuned. Have the last few years shifted your faith? I'm Brett Harris, and last year I walked away from the pulpit without a plan. I just knew where I was wasn't where I was supposed to be. And I'd love for you to join me as I wander and wonder about faith and scripture and how we can continue to follow Jesus' example even when our path forward is unclear. Find God Knows Where today in your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us. Reverend Jason Smith is the executive director of Baptista por la Paz. Throughout his career, Jason has been part of churches, movements, and small groups of people committed to changing the world. After participating in the 2017 Peace Camp in Mexico and experiencing a truly spiritual moment with other peacemakers, he was deeply called to join BPFNA, Baptista por la Paz, as a peacemaker. So, Jason... Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thank you so much, Mitch, Missy. It's good to be with you today. Thanks for joining us. So tell our audience about your organization. I am the executive director, as you mentioned, of Bautistas por la Paz, uh, BPFNA, which stands for the Baptist Peace Fellowship of North America. But we do go by BPFNA, Bautistas por la Paz. And um, we are, we call ourselves the largest Baptist network of peacemakers in the United States and Canada and Mexico and Puerto Rico. We also collaborate with partners in uh, Colombia and Cuba. So we are an, an international um, organization with uh, the mission of witnessing to God's peace rooted in justice, working together until it comes. Uh, we have been around since 1984, and yeah, we're um, we are a group of peacemakers that um, gather together who uh, try to live out God's peace with justice. Love that. That's amazing. I don't know if you're familiar with Baptist history, but Baptist and peacemakers haven't <laughs> always gone hand in hand. So, <laughs> is that I, right? I, I'm just, I'm just saying. <laughs> I do get a lot of interesting looks when I tell people I work with Baptists and I work with peace issues. So that's a very good, good insight. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, well, uh, Jason, the mission of BPFNA is to give witness to God's peace rooted in justice, working together until it comes. Now, looking at the world today, it seems to be in chaos, to be quite honest with you, and have been in <laughs> chaos uh, for quite some time. Why is that mission so important, especially right now? 
I reflect on this a lot and sort of where the world is right now. Um, I and, and part of that reflection comes from my very recent um, becoming a parent within the last three years and just thinking about the world as it is right now and the world that we're going to leave to our kids and to future generations. And I can't think of a better focus right now for folks who are committed to faith, committed to um, their community, then working on issues of peace with justice and of, of really committing themselves to living out peace and justice work um, in their local communities, but also collaborating with folks across borders to try and live out um, issues of peace and justice. In the, the several countries that I mentioned we have partnerships with, there are so many issues uh, that that we 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 could focus on, and um, it seems like it's such a broad, broad, um, broad, broad work. And you know, we're this tiny little organization that is really trying to have a very broad impact and footprint for peace and justice. And so that that's really why I'm here. That's why I joined BPFNA and our board four years ago, because I really believed in the um, in, in this vision, in this idea of working interculturally, of working across um, across uh, international lines, of working with other communities to work for peace and justice. So it's 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 the most urgent issue of our of our time right now, I, I would I would say. So, Jason, I know that you grew up as a missionary kid uh, on the field. I know your parents, who are absolutely brilliant and wonderful people. Um, how do you think growing up on the mission field prepared you for the work that you're doing now with uh, B- BPFNA? That's very interesting. Yeah, I grew up, you know, and I reflect on this a lot on um, where I grew up and how I grew up and how that has has impacted me. I grew up a missionary kid in Costa Rica. Um, my parents were Southern Baptist missionaries, IMB missionaries. And so I moved there when I was two years old and started attending Spanish-speaking schools. So I really grew up in a very intercultural environment, in a very um, in an environment with my, my feet in, in really two places and with a, with, with a lot of an identity in, in, in several places. And so I was able to see, you know, um, uh, it's a lot of the differences and how people live and how people um, <laughs> experience life. And so, you know, one of the first times, though, I remember really realizing, um, you know, how I could I could really impact um, folks uh, in, w- w- with issues of peace and justice was when I was about 11 years old. My parents used to uh, host um, we called them mission teams, but they were really groups of volunteers from different parts of uh, the United States in Costa Rica. And we hosted a team, I remember from Kansas City, um, at, a, at, uh, at a banana plantation in a rural part of Limon, Costa Rica. And this was a banana plantation where we had worked with a little Baptist community there. Um, and we we hosted this group, and it was a team of optometrists who came down um, to offer you know medical care, to offer optometry care. And I was a translator as an 11 year old. Wow. You know, I was sitting there uh, with with optometrists, you know, checking banana plantation farmers' mm-hmm. eyes. And so originally, I thought I wanted to be an optometrist. I really was was <laughs> curious about going into that. 
once I, I, I realized I'm not cut out for medical field, really, uh, I, I started <laughs> to think differently about uh, about how I could um, how I could make an impact. But it was really in seeing the disparity mm-hmm. in seeing the disparity and realizing how is it that folks on this banana plantation, on this dole banana plantation, and all of the 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 sort of layers of um, uh, that, that that come along with, um, with 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 that history? How is it that folks here don't have access to care? And yet, you know, I remember being on furlough in the United States. You could just go to Walmart and buy a pair of glasses and get checked out by the optometrist there. It was really seeing those disparities that started tugging at me to be interested in in politics and economics in in and injustice issues and so that's really what led me to study um these things in college and um you know really wanting wanting to use my spanish abilities also in in this in this work so that's that's really one one place where i was really ignited to yeah. try and learn more and try and see how i could i could serve Love that. Now, BPFNA uh, works on various issues, so let's talk about some of them specifically. First, let's talk about war and peace. Civil wars, international conflicts, and internal strife worldwide continue to escalate. How is your organization addressing the escalation of war around the world? So one of the things that, um, that, 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 be, that you know, BPFNA began um, back in the 1980s um, in the midst of the Cold War, in the midst of a situation of, you know, these global huge superpowers um, being engaged in this in this conflict. And um, within the night in the 1980s, you know, our little group of peacemakers were really interested in coalescing different groups of Baptists to make an impact for peace. And it was really a, um, it, it was it was it was an attempt to be very cross ideological, um, to incorporate folks w- with different um, perspectives. And so uh, we actually led um, a, a delegation of American Baptists and Southern Baptists to the USSR back in the 1980s, you know, um, trying to uh, uh, trying to look at some of the, these these major huge um, superpowers and, and how we could possibly make an impact on on a small level. And, and in the last 40 years, we have um, done friendship tours to different countries where there have been significant conflicts, um, Nicaragua. Um, we, we've had partnerships with, with Nicaragua. Um, we've done a lot of work with Cuba. And so a lot of our work um, centers around uh, really three themes that we talk about at uh, BPFNA. And that's we we gather together peacemakers. Um, one of the places we gather um, that that you know brings us together annually is our peace camp, is our summer conference, which we have held um, for for decades now, and we haven't held in person for a few years now uh, due to the the pandemic reality. But we gather together peacemakers to um, share stories, to worship together, to learn from each other at workshops on issues of peace and justice. And so this is an in-person or virtual space where we can you know, learn from each other and really feel the spirit moving us. We also um, equip folks uh, through resources and uh, we have um, 
We have resources that we've been developing for uh, for many years now via the the Baptist Peacemaker, which is a publication that actually predates our organization um, and really led to you know the inspiration of, of of our organization. But it's it's resources for folks to who are on a on a congregational level, on an individual level, to work for peace and justice in their local communities. And uh, we also do um, some mobilizing, mobilizing our own Baptist community, but mobilizing with other denominations and other faith entities and other religions um, to try and work for issues of peace and justice. And so we've really looked, um, you know, in the last year that I've been with uh, BPFNA, I've been approaching this issue from how can I and how can our organization really make an impact with some of these these conflicts, as you mentioned, conflicts escalating. So one place, um, you know, I, I looked at with, with with my expertise in which, you know, expertise, well, my background is, you know, I looked at um, uh, uh, interaction between um, our, the United States and Cuba and this longstanding uh, blockade. And so, um, looking at ways in which uh, we can uh, speak with with folks at all levels of government to try and end this this blockade issues of peace and justice you know initially we started thinking about issues of peace and justice with more of an anti-war mindset and that of course is still a thread mm-hmm. that factors into um, into our, our work but it, it's really been an emphasis also on justice issues that um, you know you can't have peace. Uh, and an absence of violence or an absence of war if there isn't justice, if there isn't uh, real justice in communities. And so we, we have been engaged with um, with with with, uh, with efforts to try and uh, um, end war and trying to, to bring bring peace um, in, in small levels to the world. But there's also been that emphasis on um, trying to 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 sow seeds of justice and trying to uh, to feel the wind of the spirit moving us toward justice issues um, in, in different contexts as well. That's great. So uh, that's a little bit about our approach. Yeah. Good. So you mentioned resources. How can our audience find those resources? Absolutely. Yeah. You can go to bpfna.org and you can find um, uh, a little uh, a little link that leads you to resources and you can find past editions of our Baptist Peacemaker um, information um, about uh, things you can incorporate into your liturgy. In fact, in a couple of weeks, um, uh, well, on May 21st, we will be holding uh, BPFNA Sunday, which uh, we have um, now, uh, I, th- I think we're up to 15 congregations who are going to be incorporating a, a similar liturgical pieces um, into their, their worship service in a service that's focused um, solely on, on peace and justice. Um, issues and so there's liturgical resources and we're also just about to launch a new um, virtual uh, online digital resource that um, that that offers up different ideas for youth and children's resources that are that are structured around peace and these aren't um, you know there are some resources that are that are um, religiously based but a lot of them aren't a lot of them are um, suggestions for movies that may have come out that you could watch in in in, um, in a setting with kids and with youth to uh, talk about peace and justice issues um, so so yeah you can go to bpfna.org and 
check us out, check out our resources and look for that youth and children's page coming up pretty soon. That's awesome. So you mentioned um, specifically work in Cuba, and I know that one um, aspect you work particularly on is religious liberty in that area. Can you um, tell us a little bit more about that work in Cuba? Sure. So, um, you know, Cuba has had a a long and and, um, very interesting uh, history over the last 65 years with, um, you know, the since the revolution with the issue of religion. And of course, for for a long time, um, the, you know, the government really tried to uh, keep religious actors uh, under control and uh, and and, you know, tried to prevent a lot of um, religious activity in the beginning. But really, since the 90s, the government has been uh, making a lot of changes and there's been a lot more openness toward uh, religious groups for being a being able to thrive and and grow. And one of the groups that we work with that I know other uh, Baptist groups work with is the Fraternity Baptist Churches of Cuba, La Fraternidad. Um, and we've we've worked with them, you know, since since the very beginning, since they began in the in the late 80s um, with with um, with with just partnerships and um, and engagement with with Cuba. Um, but, y- you know, in the last few years, um, there's there, there have been some significantly, um, you know, some 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 swings back and forth uh, with with issues with Cuba. You know, President Obama, um, toward the end of his term, opened up uh, or tried to open the way for um, for Cuba to have more normalized relationships with uh, relations with the United States. But a lot of that effort changed uh, dramatically uh, under the Trump administration. Um, and even, you know, most recently, with regards to your question about religious liberty, the Biden administration has placed um, Cuba on a list of countries, according to their International Religious Freedom Report, of countries that um, that suppress religious liberty or um, keep religious liberty um, tamped down. And so, you know, a, a, a few months a, a few months ago, I wrote an article um, in our Baptist Peacemaker about how, you know, I bear witness to the presence of religious liberty in Cuba. And while things are not perfect, and I do not argue things are perfect uh, with all, you know, in all areas in, in Cuba, there is there is a, a, a deep amount of religious expression in Cuba. It, it exists in a very different format, a very different definition um, of 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 how that religious liberty is is expressed, how it's how uh, religious groups engage with uh, with with um, with the government in in Cuba, but um, you know I just wanted to bear witness to the fact that I worshipped in um, in communities that were registered by the government. I worshipped in uh, which was a Baptist churches. I worshipped in uh, a Pentecostal church that was not registered by the government. That was just mm-hmm. a group of individuals that gathered together, and uh, I preached uh, w- uh, in, in a very Pentecostal um, <laughs> with a very Pentecostal congregation. Um, it was very alive and and active and and um, very filled with the Spirit. And I also had the opportunity to lead worship with the uh, Cardinal of Cuba, believe it or not. And uh, 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 I, I, I 
15 minutes before an ecumenical service, I was asked to read the gospel lesson. Uh, and so I, I just feel like there's this idea that religious expression does not exist in Cuba. And while it is very different than the way we express ourselves in other countries, in Canada, in Mexico, in the United States, um, it, it does exist. It is there. And there are people of faith who are working very hard for peace and justice issues in Cuba. Wow. Thanks for that. Appreciate that. Now, yeah. let's talk a little bit more about your work in Latin America. Uh, as you know, this week, Title 42 is coming to an end. And with that, there is expected a, a lot more migrants who are going to be making their way up through Mexico to the Mexico-U.S. border. What work has uh, your organization done to assist migrants, to help churches in their ministry to migrants? Because uh, this this is just a huge issue. It is, absolutely. And, you know, many of, um, y- a lot of our focus in Latin America has, has lifted up this issue of migration. And, you know, the topic of migration is deeply related to issues of of peace and justice. Why do why do people leave their communities? Why you know why do people move? A lot of, a lot of the time it's 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 for economic reasons. A lot of the time it's because there is no peace in their community, and they're looking for safety and security. And so, our organization has been uh, very active in supporting uh, folks who are working in their local communities to um, encourage and um, offer safety and offer protection for migrants. We have uh, several congregations that uh, offer, um, that, that serve as sanctuary congregations, and we, we support their efforts and, um, and offer ourselves as, as, a, as a partner in that effort as well, and in, um, you know, trying to, um, trying to offer, uh, offer, sa- offer safety and offer security and offer uh, a place to, to just live and thrive for immigrants who might have um, reached this country, but they're um, their immigration status might be might might still have some questions or might still be in process, and so uh, we've supported uh, congregations that um, are sanctuary congregations. Most recently, we wanted to do a project to lift up the voices of women who are working in um, are working with other women in migration. Um, a lot of times, the journey for you know the, the journey for migrant women is even more intense than it is for for men or other persons um and so so we wanted in in march for women's history month we wanted to lift up the voices of women who um worked directly with migrants so we had a series of four webinars where we talked with uh, with community organizers with leaders in tijuana and um in, in mexico um and in 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 um, Cali, Colombia, that work with migrants from Venezuela, and you know, just to hear their stories, to to hear how um, how this the the journeys for migrants are, are are so intense, are so difficult, and how individuals and congregations can offer resources, can offer uh, prayers, obviously, but offer their you know their partnership to supporting um, efforts to to be with with migrants. 
as as Baptists, as followers of Jesus, as people who follow God, we believe that the issue of sojourning and the issue of migration is something that's very deeply biblically rooted. And we believe in God's solidarity with migrants everywhere. And so we want to we want to parallel that. We want to live into that and follow the spirit in supporting migrants everywhere. And so we were really happy to um, to engage in, in, in that project of lifting up their voices. Um, videos from those um, sessions, by the way, are available on our YouTube page, uh, our BPFNA YouTube page, and um, was really happy we were able to get to do that project. Great. Absolutely. Well, Reverend Jason Smith, Executive Director of Baptista La Paz. We really appreciate you being part of Good Faith Weekly this week. But before we let you go, Missy's got one last question for you. I have two last questions. Oh, okay. She's got two questions. You kind of stepped in front of me there. Sorry, I apologize. (laughs) I tend to do that. Yeah. So let our listeners know how they can become involved with your organization. Absolutely. Um, Folks can join us. Join us online first and check out our, uh, our our page on bpfna.org. And one of the first things you'll see is an invitation to our peace camp, which we are holding for the first time in person since 2019 in Puerto Rico. It's going to be right after the American Baptist Church's biennial. It'll be June 26th through the 30th, and there's still some spots, and we uh, we encourage folks to check us out and join us in Puerto Rico for a week of um, sharing stories, of learning from each other, of um, celebrating together, and um, and, and yeah, come come join us at, at Peace Camp. Um, and 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 yeah, we encourage you to um, check us out uh, for other events that that we hope to have. We haven't had a lot of in-person events in uh, in recent years, obviously, but we really do want to have more in-person events and and continue our virtual presence as well for peace and justice. That sounds great. Thank you so much. Well, Jason, as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is "There's more to tell." So in light of our conversation today and the work that you do, what is your more to tell? My more to tell would be for for folks not to forget our call as followers of Jesus, as human beings, to live out peace in the world and to really embrace a, a, a holistic, um, a holistic uh, choice to embody peace in the world. I mentioned that I preached uh, that sermon at that Pentecostal uh, community in Cuba. And after the, um, after being, you know, filled with the spirit and energized um, in, in that moment, um, a pastor of uh, the first Baptist church, Ciego de Avila, um, an associate pastor, Osmanis, my good friend, came up to me and told me a little bit about his story. He was a Franciscan priest for uh, many years, and then, uh, you know, now he works, uh, he, he ministers with the Baptist community there, but he gave me this right here, and our viewers can't see it, but it's it's the towel. It's um, the symbol of, uh, of St. Francis. It's the symbol for Franciscans everywhere, and he said, I want you to take this. I want you to be energized by the Spirit in this moment. And so I do, I wear this towel and I I, um, feel in solidarity with those who seek to be peacemakers everywhere, whether they're Baptist, whether they're Christian, whether they practice any faith, 
to be in solidarity with movements for peace. And so that would be my story to tell and really is a part of my my life journey. And I hope folks can um, embrace and be inspired uh, to live out issues of peace and justice in their communities. Well, I've, I've also learned in my research of you that we have a, um, well, we have a a few patron saints of the pod. One of those is Ted Lasso. <laughs> so I feel like I, in yes. the quote of Ted Lasso's, doing the right thing is never the wrong thing. And oh. I love that that's what your organization is doing and promoting, and that's how you are um, seeking to achieve peace throughout the world. So, Wow. Quoting Ted Lasso. Amen. Amen, Ted Lasso. <laughs> uh, well, Jason, thank you so much for joining us this week. We wish you the very best. And uh, please, audience, check them out. It is a great organization that is spreading peace and justice around the world. Thank you so much, Missy. Thanks so much, Mitch. It's great to be with you. We talked about a lot of really cool things that they're doing. Yeah, you know, one thing that stood out to me in the beginning when just in our conversation was the story about when he was an 11-year-old and ended up being kind of a de facto translator Mm -hmm. for the optometrists who came in to um, provide vision care for the folks who were working on the Dole Plantation. Yeah. And I thought, obviously, that was a pivotal experience for him. Sure. And how when you grow up in the context that we grew up in and you're used to, like he said, you go into Walmart, you get the optometrist, you get your glasses and that's just, it's right right there. And how important some of those moments are in a person's life that change your, your frame of thinking Mm -hmm. of what justice might look like Mm -hmm. and how once you see something, you can't unsee it. Right. And to know that these people who are working for a major corporation are still needing, you know, mission type work just to get basic vision care. Mm -hmm. And how I wish that everyone, including myself, could experience more of those moments, those reality checks, as I would kind of term them, of that not everyone lives as we live. You know, what was really intriguing to me about that story is you know, he was an MK, he was a missionary kid. Uh, this happened to him when, at a you know a fairly young age, mm-hmm. and obviously it left such an impression on him that he has dedicated his entire life advocating for peace and justice. And I just want to say a word real quick about the importance of introducing your children to different cultures, uh, to different socioeconomic uh, situations, because I think about our boys, and I think about you know the churches that they grew up in, and it wasn't necessarily anything that we did spectacular, but in the communities that they grew up in, they were able to experience these situations, different cultures, and I think it you know, has inspired them to be more empathetic uh, in their uh, now young adult life. I mean, I think about the, the time where here in Norman and we had the ice storm and everything got shut down and we opened up the church to be the local shelter for uh, citizens of Norman and, and a lot of people who were you know, displaced and you know, who were, you know, didn't have any heat, they came and you know, we fed them and we treated them 
you know, just like anybody else and loved on them and cared for them and, and laughed with them. And it was good for our, our kids to see that and to experience that, that the world isn't the same for everybody. And I also think about the time I took Tanner to Ghana, West Africa, and let him experience that culture and to interact with kids his own age uh, in that environment. And just uh, what he brought back from that. I just think it's so important that we just don't gloss over the fact of the importance of giving your children the opportunities to have these experiences, to expose them to other cultures, other socioeconomic situations, because it does open their eyes, as you said a moment ago. And once your eyes are open, you cannot not see it again. I also think we have to be careful about the mission tourism oh, 100%, industry that's 100%. happening now. And I'm not saying that we haven't been guilty of that in some form or fashion sure. throughout our lifetime because we grew up in church and mission trips and things like this. And I, so I don't think it's like, oh, come on, kids, we're going to go downtown and see how the other half lives. I just don't think that's the point. But I do think because we live in such affluence in our country in, in many ways, I know many people don't, but many of us, you know, I've got, I could walk down to the Walmart and get right. a pair of glasses right now, for example. But I do feel like there are some of those moments that just make you see the world in a different way. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important in, in, in an organization like, like Jason's that is for peace and justice. It reminded me of our time last summer at the Lot Carey conference. And um, when he was talking about, again, the, the doctors who gave their time again, mm -hmm. as probably a mission trip to come down sure. and help these people with their vision. When Willie Francois, somebody we've interviewed and adore on the pod, he said, um, justice makes charity unnecessary. Mm. And I just thought, what if the people on that plantation had true justice and had true access mm. to the care that they needed, right. whether that be vision or medical or whatever it is, education? Mm -hmm. What if we were about bringing justice throughout the world? And again, like the example you provided with our children during the ice storm, they were able to go up to our church and, and actually make, they prepared meals. Like, right. you know, they put on the, the gloves and the, the hair nuts and, and worked in the, the kitchen preparing meals for people who, you know, if we were, when we were in that situation and we lost power and, you know, our, our context is that we could have made it to a grandparent's house. We could have mm -hmm. gotten to somebody, but to see that there are people out there who in that dire situation of living without power for a week, they're right. truly living without power for a week and yeah. they are relying on, benevolence from from churches and other organizations which i think is great and we always need to do but how can we make sure that the justice within our context and within the world and within our community is such that you minimize that yeah and that is such an important point missing i'm so glad you brought it up because you're exactly right a lot of times the church and especially christianity focus primarily on the charitable work that the church should do and that's good work as you said a moment ago it's, it's needed uh it's something that we should not shy away from uh, it's certainly something that is noble but at the same time, we cannot look away from justice in order to do charity work. And the quote from Francois, I think, exactly says that. 
uh, that we do have to focus on justice. Here's the problem, Missy, and I'm going to ask you a question. Uh-oh. Do you think we really want justice for everybody? Because I if mean, everybody gets justice, that means they are going to be given the same opportunities that we have, which will make them our equal. If you want my honest answer, and I think you're calling me out here because we've had this conversation, I say no. Yeah. I think we like to categorize. We like to know where we fall in the ranks of things. We like to um, pat ourselves on the back Mm -hmm. when we do missions, when we do charity work. We're helping the least of these and all of those things. I think we hold on to that too much. And if we really address the systems that are in place that make that a necessity, then we have to really take a hard look in the mirror and find out what our motivators are. So another quote that I have from that same Lot Carey meeting that we were at, you know, is charity without confronting the evils that exist is nothing but pity. Mm. But at the end of the day, I think our nature is to need to be able to pity someone else because it makes us feel because it makes us a feel superior more secure in our societal standing yeah. and so um it's something that i'm not i've not conquered i've not won over mm-hmm. but it's just something that eats at me yeah. that that what is our our motivation when we do these when we do good works are we addressing systems are we addressing, are we being peacemakers? Are we being justice um, finders for people truly? Which is not, you know, just, you know, giving somebody some food, but making sure they have access to education, to employment, to the same things that we have access to. Yeah. Or, or we or somebody else, whoever. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, thanks for opening that trap for me to walk into. No, and, and you spoke about this before, you know, just in our private conversations, and you did, I mean, you're absolutely right, and I have nothing to add because, I mean, what you said is just truth uh, because you're exactly right, and so thanks for saying it, and, you know, I think all of us have some work to do when it comes to advocating for justice. Uh, like I said, the benevolence work that we do, the charity work we do, it is needed. But the justice work is probably needed more because if there was justice, there would not need to be charity. And just as Dr. Francois said. So in my list of, of just notes that I have in my phone that I was looking at, you know, in reference that correlated to our interview with Jason, I'm going to quote the great Reverend Dr. Preston Clegg, our friend at Second Baptist Church in Little oh, Rock. Oh, yeah. Who we are releasing a narrative podcast Yes, about very soon. soon. Very so soon. be on the lookout for that. But I have, I don't even remember where he put this, but it was so impactful to me that I've, I've kept it in my phone. But, you know, he says, we cannot benevolence our way out of problems we injusticed our way into. Mm. And we cannot kindness our way out of injustices we have policied ourselves into. So I, I will attribute that to the Reverend Dr. Preston Clegg. He may have stolen it from somebody else. I don't know. I attribute it to him. I adore him. So I just want to say, though, that that is such an important word. We cannot Absolutely. benevolence our way out of problems we injustice our way into. And that, I think, by and large, is the problem in our world. Yeah. We have injusticed ourselves into the problems we've created this mess. Yep. Well said. Well said. Well, you and I are getting on a plane again uh, next week and heading to the... Wait, wait, folks. Don't be jealous. (laughs) 
You're about to be real jealous. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's really highbrow. I That's mean, it's right. such an incredible, you know, event. But ladies and gentlemen, we will be at the festival of homiletics. Did you know there was a festival about that? <laughs> yeah, it's not like the conference of homiletics. No, it's, it's not a the festival. summit of. Com- it's a festival. I got my festival footwear ready to go. <laughs> yes, but I I have not been before. You have. I've heard it's phenomenal. So we look forward to telling you all kinds of fun stuff from that. Yeah, we get to hear one of our uh, pod friends, That's Reverend right. Dr. Otis Moss oh, III, is going to be preaching. I'm so, so excited. Yeah, it's be really so sad. yes, we are we are heading that way, and we will we will report back um with with, i'm sure lots of other fun stories absolutely until next week keep living good faith You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org. <laughs>